0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello, and welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, episode 98. Brings the inspiring story of the university mates who set out to reinvent the cocktail in a can. A couple of years later, their creation, Moth, is Britain's fastest growing ready-to-drink brand. So, how did they do it? We'll find out. Plus, later on, Freddie Bulmer is back. He's been globetrotting again. The Wine Society buyer will share his thoughts on New Zealand. The drinking hour on Food FM. It began at university with a shared love of food and drink. A decade later, having spent their student loans buying ingredients to experiment with cocktails, Rob Wallace and Sam Hunt have the UK's fastest-growing premium RTD, that's ready-to-drink brand. Moth, which stands for Mix of Total Happiness, in case you're wondering, launched in February 2021 during lockdown, and a year later moth was selling a can every 22 seconds there are now eight cocktails in the range uh, they're sustainable too because cans have an infinite lifespan so great providing we all do the right thing and recycle let's find out uh, how they did it uh, rob and sam join us now uh, welcome to the drinking hour guys
1: thank you very much for having us great to be here yeah hi david thanks for having us uh, pleasure
0: Uh, So, uh, yeah, how did you do it? Well, let's go back to the start. Um, uh, You met at uni um, and uh, many people just, um, frankly, go out and and get hammered socially. But you had a, a slightly different idea, didn't you?
2: We did. And I think it's very kind of you to say uh, that we met at university. I think the bond was definitely strengthened there. Unfortunately, I wish I could claim that we'd never shared a drink before that point. However, it's not true. (laughs) We actually went to school next door to each other and to university together by accident. So we lived together at university and whether it's a good influence or a bad influence, uh, it certainly changed the course of our lives. Uh, So as you say, eating and drinking together at university had a massive impact, although definitely some memorable nights out together or not so memorable um, I think the the massive crux of our relationship was when we moved in together in in our second uni- uh, year of university and started cooking for each other we lived in a house of six um, and actually the most social thing in the house was sharing food and drink together and you know six days a week and a seventh where you try and work out what you're doing but cooking uh, every night of the week and sharing drinks together was a massive part of um, our friendship and it, it was a uh, Very well-timed and very grateful to my mum, who decided, um, sure, just for my sake, to take a job at Diageo while I was at university. And so in the post, instead of jumpers to keep us warm at York, it was gin. And that led to um, our drink exploration following our food exploration and creating some excellent drinks together to make some memorable nights. Wow. Well, that, as you say, uh, it certainly beats... um
0: jumpers you're not going to wear or sort of food parcels of uh, of dry pasta or whatever um so uh, what made you then both so interested apart from the free gin um in in creating cocktails
2: I think it's one of those things that it's you're naturally curious to try to try and replicate things out. You know, when you're students, you're not able to necessarily go out every night and afford wonderful cocktails. And so the idea of having a go yourself in an environment with your friends is is amazing. But I think it kind of speaks to the sociability of cocktails as a thing themselves. They are magical and mystical and just open up a different part of an evening to maybe a glass of wine or, or, a, or a bottle of beer and so I think it's something inane you know intrinsic to cocktails that makes them special and sociable and that attraction of sharing something so you know social by its very nature together it's sort of it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: Yeah I, I guess so I mean they can be really difficult to make as well can't they?
2: I think definitely difficult to make well. I think a lot of people have had the experience of making a bad cocktail and it's definitely easy, uh, but you're right. I think it's, you know, there's definitely a craft behind them and one we massively appreciate, you know, spending the little money we could going out and having great cocktails of seeing how good they can be, you know, in, in the trade. And so absolutely, I think we have a real appreciation for what good looks like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we, we were lucky enough to, you know, go to the university at York and which is actually an incredibly inspiring place uh, at the time. You know, there was bars such as Evil Eye and hotels like the Grand, so we hadn't quite really realised it, but we were very lucky to be drinking where we were uh, and going to these bars, which I think was quite formative as well, wasn't it?
2: Even if we weren't able to go to them quite as regularly as we yeah, would like to on yeah, some fairly meager student visited. loans.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say you you need a budget, but it is, um, you're right, it's a, um, a fantastic city uh, to to, to enjoy. Um, it's one thing to have a kind of enthusiasm. You mentioned cooking for each other, uh, experimenting for uh, you know, making drinks for each other and, and so forth. But it's a whole nother thing, um, especially uh, when you're in your 20s, which you both still are, um, to create um, a successful business. So, where did you start?
2: I think we started not by trying to create a successful business. I think that's the most important bit. We genuinely wanted to create something that we couldn't find in our lives. I mean, we found ourselves after university, both living in London, working hard and coming home on a, on a Friday night. And, you know, you sort of open the fridge with absolutely shattered and go, I can have a can of beer or I can have a glass of wine. I would rather have a cocktail. But if you think I'm going to get out a shaker and I'm going to get out six bottles and a spoon and I hope I've remembered ice, if, if, I, if you think that's going to happen, you're crazy. But I'd always rather have a cocktail. And so on the occasions where we could, you know, I I would make cocktails and Sam, I'm sure the same when you had people over and you wanted to be hospitable and host and start those evenings together and end them as well a lot of the time. But I think you just don't do that when you come home on a Friday night and you're by yourself or, you know, or, you, you know, even if it's you and your partner, you might open a lovely bottle of wine. But actually the opportunity to have a cocktail in that moment was not there. And so I sent Sam a message, and we have it screenshotted somewhere, which, which changed the, definitely the course of both our lives, which is I sent him a message, and I said, I want to make a company that makes the perfect bottled old-fashioned. And the reply back, which will echo you know, down, down the ears for both of us, is that's not actually a terrible idea. And that's <laughs> verbatim the line. Um, and however many years later, uh, we're here. So I think it started with looking for something that we genuinely didn't see. And that first two and a half years, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about it later, but we were in glass, so little glass bottles hand-filled, hand-labeled, making every mistake you possibly could for two and a half years before COVID arrived. And COVID really was what galvanised this and saying, if we're serious about being as easy as a can of beer, there's only one option to start. We need to be in a can. And that process of going to can and rebranding and going from there started the avalanche of what today is moth, as which, as you say, 1st of Feb 2021.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and also as well, when we were first looking at this back in 2017, 2018, Pre-batch, it wasn't really a thing. Uh bars were using it as a as a as a tool. Um, but from the consumer side, it really wasn't a thing. So starting from that point of can we put an old fashioned in a bottle was was really new territory for for us and also a lot of the consumers we were speaking to, which was scary, you know, the, the first plunge into, you know, when we, we can talk about this when we quit our jobs and went full time, but it, it really was pre-lockdown. So we were learning and making mistakes before that real impetus and uh, growth came through 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 lockdown for us and other brands.
0: So Sam was it uh, obviously covid was um, a nightmare uh, for pretty much everyone touched everyone's lives was there any advantage for you because we did drink at home uh, a lot um, during those lockdowns was this the sort of silver lining of um, the, uh, the the pandemic if if I dare um, kind of use such terminology.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for us, you know, as as we said, we were we were selling in in places like Selfridges and Harrods and and hotels in, in London, and so when those lockdowns started happening, we were very much in the same boat as hospitality. So we were facing huge unknowns. It was a really scary point in 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 Moth's journey, actually. And and so we lost almost everything, much like hospitality did. And it, it was that point there that, as Rob said, we looked at each other and we said, look, glass just isn't the way forward. Um, we, we've got to move to Cairns. Uh and, and we did that. And through that process, we got the Waitrose listing very much as part, as you said, of, of that drinking at home experience. But actually what we found was that happened and went away the at-home drinking uh, and people were still loving the brand and still looking for those occasions and we've been very lucky that we've had huge success this year you know as as covid um, has been something that's been further and further in our memories uh, of those lockdown um, points and and that's led us on to Tesco's and Sainsbury's so it was a part of the journey but perhaps not in the way that people might perceive it from the outside.
0: Well, that brings me neatly on to something I was going to ask later, but I'll ask it now and then we'll we'll talk about sustainability cans and also what's inside those cans, because I think that's really interesting, too. But but you have for a um, a for, you know a young business, um, you have um, the Holy Grail, which is um, good retail availability. Uh, the number of times I'm a wine man and the number of times I, um, I taste a great wine, but y- you can't get it basically because it's not in in stores that people go into. And yet, um, you're in Waitrose, you mentioned Tesco as well. These are you know, titans of retail. So how on earth did you do that so quickly?
2: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to forget our dear orange friends at Sainsbury's as well. But I think it's really interesting that as, as a young brand, you have some really difficult choices to make in the early days. And I think one of the obvious ones for us is we're, we're a young brand two people when we started without millions and millions in the bank to go and to go and try and change people's behaviour. So our job initially was to be where our consumers are it's all very well making an amazing product but it's kind of like you know winking with the lights off if you're not available anywhere and if you're not easy to find and easy to make a fit for people's lives you're not going to get picked up and I think it's a big tenet of moth from the start that you should not have to wear the right shoes or have the right glass or know everything there is to know about tequila to enjoy a moth and so that extended all the way into we need to be where our customers are especially during lockdown when you can't leave the house And so. That's obviously well and good coming to that conclusion, but it's a very different thing getting to that first listing. And I think we need to massively credit the vision of John Vine and the team at Waitrose in believing in the idea. Because when we came to him, sure, it was it was a nearly finished brand and a nearly finished liquid at a time when sure ready to drink was taking off, but there were lots of people doing it. I think a big part of that decision is being there for two and a half years before, as Sam mentioned, the first single serve ready to drink cocktail in Selfridges. And so we had the pedigree there, but we, we had a lot of um, belief uh, and buy-in from the team at Waitrose and, I really hope that actually after that first year, we had a very single-minded focus to pay back that massive risk that they took. And so in our first year, the business plan was almost just look after Waitrose. We don't need a 1,000 clients. We're still Mm -hmm. only two people. Let's not go and do an incredible direct consumer website. Let's make sure there's something there for our fans. But actually, let's just look after Waitrose. And I think that single mindedness meant that the numbers in Waitrose and and that risk paid off for them, and so we were able to then go and have the conversations with the Tesco's, the Sainsburys, and then as the trade started to open up and aviation, the British Airways, the you know the the Iceland Air, the hotel groups, the Hoxton, the Sittern, those kind of places as they started to open because we'd had such a single minded focus on let's just try and get this one thing right. And as a small brand, it's a piece of advice that we have to remind ourselves of constantly is actually. Just do one thing well. Don't try and do a million formats or a million drinks. Just do one thing really well.
1: That's actually uh, page one of our handbook. <laughs> is, uh, do one thing well in big in big letters.
2: Right. You're going to get
0: one day, if you have a grand reception in your corporate HQ, you're going to have all of these things emblazoned um, across the walls. But then you're a nimble business, so you probably won't have a grand building and a reception because um, I suspect you'll, uh, you'll know better already. But uh, let's talk about the... Um, the cans then so uh, they look really good um and cans i'm a um a, a, a big believer in cans um for for wine and but whatever the drink frankly i think they're fantastic um obviously they have a very bad start in life because they're made with bauxite um but they have they will outlive us. It, um, they are infinitely recyclable. Um, that's pretty incredible that you could be outlived by a, an empty can of Diet Coke or whatever. But you know, if people recycle it, um, it's a it's a great format. So I'm a um, I'm on board. But um, I haven't mentioned everything that's great about um, cans. So here's your opportunity. What? Why should we believe in the can beyond what I've said?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great question. So yeah, I think as you as you've pointed out, the life cycle of a can. Uh, which is aluminium, starts as bauxite. Uh, and it is true that it is very power intensive to go from bauxite to alumina to aluminium. Um, however, what's really interesting about aluminium as a, as a material is that, um, and if you look at companies like Norse Hydro uh, and others, which you, can, which you can Google, if you were to use renewable energy at that initial stage of manufacturing, if you combine that with the fact that aluminium, as you said, is is almost infinitely recyclable, you have a really interesting green metal um as part of the um circular economy um in in the renewable renewable space for fmcg and i think what's really interesting is you know there's various studies that have been looked at for this and you know most people say about 75 percent of aluminium ever produced is still in circulation so i think as you pointed out as a a material um there's something really exciting here and i think that was part of our decision to move to to cans um not only uh for those sustainable pieces but also from the premiumization, you know we've seen it across craft beer and wine and for the consumer there's numerous other wins that aren't always that obvious for example if you take a bottle of wine 5% of the weight of that um, if you were to put it into can um, it gives huge amounts of savings in, in CO2 and emissions so for us for um, sustainability, but also for the consumer from the freshness,
2: it just delivers and ticks all the boxes. I think there's also a really interesting add one there to add is sort of as our responsibility, responsibility as a business to make it easy for our consumer to be sustainable. You can have amazing pack formats, but if they're not recycled as part of your household recycling, or they're difficult to understand, or you're just putting barriers between the consumer, and it comes back to that overall piece, which we mentioned before of being a fit for your life, we're not here for you to get in the way of having a great drink experience or not having a massive harm on the uh, you know a massive impact harming the planet and so it kind of goes back to the broader philosophy of moth that it, it's amazing how long it took us but we got there in the end we saw the light of the can that it just it's a fit and as sam said if it can be a can again in in 60 days time why would you not use it
1: yeah absolutely and it is uh, as Rob pointed out you know for the consumer there's not those choices of is it is it recyclable is it not is it plastic which type of plastic you know we've us and the operations team have visited recycling centers uh, and it is astounding the amount of aluminum cans that they process through through those sites um because the consumers just aware of it and they do actively seek to recycle that material my
0: knowledge of this is a little bit shakier uh, but you, i'm sure you you've probably got a a deeper understanding of it my understanding is that um cans are not especially energy intensive to recycle versus for example glass or uh, possibly pet
2: yeah absolutely i mean it's kind of a double whammy of that uh, glass isn't recycled as nearly as much as it should be uh, and we'd love to see that increase but also you've got to get it up to 1700 degrees to then do it with aluminium the rates are much higher and it's much easier it's kind of a you're running out of reasons why not um for a lot of for a lot of drinks especially ours
0: and uh let's talk about what's actually in the cans because we haven't really done that yet um what was your um first drink that you I uh, did you just launch with a single drink you've got 8 now but i'm assuming you didn't launch with 8
2: no, but we didn't like to make our our lives easier either. So we launched with four. Um, we Obviously, the old-fashioned, as I mentioned, in 2018 was a big sort of turning point in us deciding to do it. But I, we wanted to launch with a sort of minimum viable range of being, you know, not everyone likes whiskey, not everyone likes rum, not everyone X, Y, Z. And so having four cocktails that suited four different occasions with different profiles, they were all classics, All any of them you'd recognize off a menu and enjoy. And so that when that moth range hit the shelves in Waitrose, you had a really good choice and also that it was almost a whole new part of the category and you can't launch a whole new category with one thing. And so having that presence on shelf of this is what we think premium looks like, this is what we think the future of canned cocktails looks like. And not only that, you've got a choice. Find the one you like, find your favourite.
0: It's ambitious, uh, to say the least, um, to launch a new brand with um, four uh, drinks. Um, You kind of have, you seem to have an attitude that's... um, that, that, that you know not much is going to stop you guys
2: <laughs> that's very kind i mean i hope it lo- i'm glad it looks like that from the outside i think as i said we we had um the drinks sort of ready from the two and a half years and obviously there was work to do to get them into a can but I think we, we really, we've, we're whole hog on this. This is We're 100% in. We've now been doing this since 2018. And it's not a surprise that we genuinely believe this is the way we should be doing things, being higher quality, being more transparent, sustainably, and also with the consumer. But I think it's not just us. Thank goodness. It's not just us and our mums buying it. It's actually a movement within, within the drinks. The biggest trend within ready to drink is premiumization and people not settling for something that they don't know what it is or with lower quality ingredients. So actually although we happen to believe and we think it's the right thing to do very fortunately and the reason for our success is we're not the only ones
0: i've been sampling and uh you know i'd be polite anyway but i i don't need to be polite i i was impressed um and the big test for me was what your negroni was going to taste like because that's my favorite cocktail um it is um un, uh, unrivaled by any other cocktail in my humble opinion it's uh, it's definitely my favorite but um yours is uh It's Tarquin's gin, isn't it? Um, I've I've momentarily forgotten the vermouth. And I think there's an Amaro in there rather than um, uh, a, a Campari. That's right, isn't it?
2: Yeah. So the unforgettable Tarquin's gin leads the pack there. We use their Navy Sea Dog, which is the beautiful red wax. Um, It's an unbelievably good gin for a Mm. uh, Negroni. Funnily enough, that's why we chose it. Um, The Vermouth is the Astley Brothers, so a London Vermouth brand. Absolutely stunning. All of the ingredients we use, we genuinely go out and buy a bottle. They're all brilliant. That's why they're in there. And that's why we put them on the label. You know, if you love this Negroni, the reason you do is the ingredients are great. Go and buy them. They're fantastic. And then the Amara is a really interesting one. There's a bit of sort of category education around it that Uh, Campari is a type of Amaro. um, And so the Amaro we've built for it, we're actually really fortunate to get to design ourselves the perfect Negroni Amaro. So, you know, when you're in the on-trade and you've got five seconds to put all the ingredients in to make a Negroni, we were very fortunate that we had a very long lockdown to make the perfect Negroni you know, well designed Amaro that complements a Negroni. So the only place you'll ever find it is that Negroni. It's that sort of, you know, we take massive inspiration from the likes of the Lioness bars and things like that, who are just so precise with ingredients. They're the really chefy approach to it. Um and so yeah, that that pleasure of designing Amaro to pair with this vermouth that we found and pair with this gin, which we just love, um, is an amazing experience. And Sam, do you design together?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Rob and I have been eating and drinking together since since um, before university and yeah so i think for us with 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 cocktails is it, it's an it's a fantastic drink that really can be perfected there's an obsession over of over something that is relatively quite simple you know taking the good the bad and the ugly of of ingredients and spirits and throwing them together and creating something that is much better than the sum of its parts and we have that approach whenever we design a drink we really do start with broad strokes and we keep improving and we keep improving and it's that real obsession and and perfection of doing one thing well that I I think you know leads us to having a Negroni
2: that that, that you can put in a can and
1: and anyone can drink and and enjoy.
2: I think there's also a really interesting point of what we put in it's all we've got we haven't got an incredible bar with amazing people with bow ties and white waistcoats and we haven't got a soft jazz pianist in the background all we've got is what we put in it and how it tastes and so that's all we focus on getting that bit right is enough to create an incredible product.
0: Do you always uh, sort of see eye to eye, you've clearly uh, known each other, well, turns out not since university, since before university. Uh, but I mean, do, do you, uh, it all appears to be very harmonious between the, the pair of you. But um, do you always agree on um, what you're doing as a business?
1: It, it, absolutely. It's funny, everyone that meets us always has the same observation, which is that Rob is the mouth and I'm the ears, And that goes a long way to say that we have very different skill sets uh, and every day we bring something different, you know, to, to, to the team and that way of working as well, you know, combined with kind of a, an implicit trust that we have each other, uh, it really means that we don't step on each other's toes. And we very rarely disagree on things because we trust each other that if, if Rob says, I don't know, uh, then Negroni needs a tad more of this, you know, I really trust
2: him on it and, and we work together on it. Yes, it would be a bit awful if actually after this, we went out the room and didn't speak. No, it is actually <laughs> as harmonious as it looks. I think, again, as Sam said back at the start, knowing what we don't know, and I'm very aware that there's lots of things that Sam knows and I don't, uh, and we're super happy with that arrangement. Yeah, I think I just worked with too many TV double acts who
0: despised <laughs> each other behind the scenes, but that's a, um, a, a another world. Um, th- there's one thing I, I suppose, uh, uh, we, we've talked about um, uh, s- sustainability, sustainability, and why you chose cans, and that's um, you know a very uh, smart decision on your part. Um, as I mentioned right at the start, they're only kind of um, good if people are good and do the right thing uh, and recycle them. And I've become, since I learned about um, the lifespan, infinite lifespan of aluminium cans, I've become um, a, a bit eccentric in that I will literally um, carry around an empty canned drink until I find an appropriate bin. And then if I find the appropriate bin, I've got to trust that the right thing happens after that. I know it doesn't always, but it should. Um, uh, so uh, I, I think I'm sort of quite well behaved, but how, how do you encourage people not just to kind of chuck it in the landfill waste?
1: So, yeah, absolutely. It's something we're, we're actually looking at on an ongoing basis. At the moment, we, we have an aluminium recycling symbol on, on the side of the can, but we're actually looking at... Imp- improving that um, going forward and using the on-pack recycling labelling, which is used by 90% of, of grocers. And that what that does is educates the consumer into what percentage and what parts of the product is recyclable. And it's an interesting one because for us, it's aluminium. Um, it's 100% recyclable. You, you put it in any bin, it's the most widely recycled material, I think, in the world, definitely in the UK. But actually, what we do there is an education piece, as you said, for the consumers that is is encouraging them to always look at the packaging and make that decision, whether it's glass, plastic, aluminium. So what we're looking at is, yes, it's helping moth recycle our cans, but actually really trying to help the wider ecosystem educate the consumer to make it a part of their life.
0: And Rob, you're uh, the mouth, he's the ears. Do you want
2: to add to that or has he uh, said it all? I think it's a, I think it's said a lot of it. I think for us, again, it comes back to what you put it in, making it easy for people to do. I mean, an aluminum can, I think there's a lot of education there. The the greater education challenge, I think, is how good can be, how good can the liquid be inside? I think that's a bigger challenge. But, you know, I think, as Sam says, if we can be part of solving the problem holistically for all of recycling and obviously pushing the can as what we think the best way to do it, um, then that's no bad thing.
0: What advice would you give uh, someone who's listening, who's um, inspired um, by uh, your story um, and wants to launch um, their own drinks brand?
1: I think it's, you know, and we say this quite a lot to each other, it's, it's knowing what you don't know. I think through inception and then also, you know, when you are growing fast, like like Moth, is every day is is, is, a, is a new day. And surrounding yourself with people that know much more than you can be, an you know, an ear to listen to sometimes, but also to to, to impart advice has been hugely valuable. Uh, you know, keeping humble, low ego has been, I think, part of one of our key successes.
2: I'd also say it's another thing when launching a business, like you want to keep the idea to yourself until it's perfect, but actually perfect is the enemy of the good here. Go and tell everyone you know about it. Go and get feedback. Go and see if it would work because actually they're not going to steal your idea and put the effort in. Everyone can have the idea, but it's whether you actually go and do it so go and find out what you should whether whether it's worth doing and then if it is go and crack on i think there's a, there's always a good balance as sam said between listening to people who know more than you and then being sure you know believing your own conviction and and really going for it but i think for us we we changed the business massively from day one and not being afraid to respond to outside pressures. I mean, obviously, we all hope there won't be another outside pressure quite like COVID for change. Um, but, you know, you can make advantages of even an awful situation like that if, you, if you're if you willing to take the risk.
0: Yeah, well, there you go. Your story is a, um, a kind of a parable in that respect, I, I suppose. Um, so you're up to uh, eight um skews as they say um, now um, kind of uh, what's next are you able to tell me
2: that's a really good question. I think uh, as we've just released three just before Christmas, we, launched the, we uh, launched the French 75, the Aperitivo Spritz and the Pina Colada. Having just done those, we're sort of taking a break and making sure that they absolutely saw this year and seeing uh, where they can go. I think we're definitely of the opinion of doing eight drinks really well than a, rather than 100 really badly. Uh, and we're really keen on the classics of not trying to... Our job here is to show off great spirits, not hide them behind, you know, difficult flavors to understand or or unnecessary complexity um so i think it's something we'll continue to look at and actually it's a really good opportunity on on things like this to ask what you know what would you do obviously the is the favorite what what moth would you love to see next
0: oh wow uh well you've got an old-fashioned already which is another one of uh, my favorites i suppose um a lychee martini you want my
1: like she's having a real moment at the moment
0: yeah yeah
2: i think it's part of the movement of the sort of i don't want to use the word kitsch because it seems unfair but the pina colada falls into the same category of people rediscovering these drinks of i think all of us feeling a little bit nostalgic for sort of more innocent carefree times um so maybe the large martini is the answer to the nation's existential crisis
0: yeah, maybe. That was the moment every interviewer dreads, by the way, where you ask me a question rather than the other way around. So uh, well done for that. You hear it occasionally on things like the Today programme and you can you can you can feel the frisson of terror. Um, final question. which um, <laughs> you look we, very calm. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, uh, final question, which we tend to ask our guests, um, a desert island drink. I'm guessing yours uh, will probably be a cocktail, but it might not be. Uh, what about you first,
1: Sam? desert island drink i think i'm a bit of a sherry fan so i think yeah. mine would have to be a bamboo which is um sweet vermouth dry vermouth uh, fino sherry and some orange bitters it's light refreshing you can drink a lot of them um they're not too boozy uh yeah that'd be mine
2: it's a super so- hard to answer to follow that. I think if I'm not allowed to have a Moth, obviously I would have the Negroni, I'm on your side, David, if it's just the one I reach for. Not that I have favorite children. They're all going to grow up to be prime minister. They're all <laughs> wonderful. Um, but no, I, I find myself reaching for that one most. Um, I love that bit of profile. But maybe, I don't know, maybe something that would um, keep me interested and that was complex. So maybe I love a black Manhattan. I love whiskey and that could keep you warm on the cold nights. So maybe something fun like that that I just wouldn't be able to have regularly at home because I've got all the time in the world to mix it while I wait yeah. to be rescued.
0: Yeah, of course. The, the, yes, time is on your side on the desert island. So uh, you'd need refrigeration as well. But uh, we don't go into those um, uh, sort of niggles, really. <laughs> uh, the bamboo home in home, a basically. can, by the way, sounds great. I'd buy that. So um uh, I'm a, a big, well, uh, big we've
2: got to have a can do. Lover. It's the perfect well, answer. Boot, yeah. It the first. yeah, definitely.
0: Well, um, listen, guys, your um uh, y- the drinks are great. Um I, I really um enjoy tasting the spritz is fantastic too. Um, like you, Rob, I-, I do love that kind of bitter profile. So um, and uh, you know, you've done so much in such a-, a short space of time. So um I'm sure many people listening will find um your story um inspirational. But uh good luck with um the next uh, uh, sort of product launch and um, and uh, well done on, on what you've achieved already.
2: Thank you Thanks so for much, joining David. us as well. Thank you. Take care.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Now it's high time we caught up with Freddie Bulmer a friend of The Drinking Hour, a friend of mine too, and the Wine Society buyer for Austria, Eastern Europe, Australia and New Zealand. He's been making up for his lockdown lack of travel with a spree of globe trotting. Uh, We talked a while ago about uh, Australia. Uh, He's been to New Zealand since in pursuit of new and exciting wines And let's find out what his assessment is of the Kiwi wine scene right now, having uh, been locked out of New Zealand uh, for a couple of years at least. Uh, Freddie, uh, welcome back to The Drinking Hour.
3: Thank you so much. It's nice to be back. Feels like it's been a while.
0: It has, yeah. And last time we talked at length about Australia because you were just back, having had um, pretty much the worst weather Australia could throw at you. Then it was New Zealand almost sort of i mean two weeks later or something wasn't it
3: yeah so i wasn't back for long uh, yeah well it was it was a little bit longer than two weeks i was back for a, 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 a what seemed like a very quick four weeks uh, before heading off to new zealand again for two and a half um which was yeah quite a tight turnaround It was uh, a lot of catching up to do before preparing for the next trip but yeah it was uh, it was fantastic And this is meeting people and tasting new wines, basically. Exactly. Um, It was mostly really catching up with people that we already work with. Um, So there were certain people who I hadn't managed to see when I was last there in 2019, pre-pandemic, but, you know, who are a key part of our portfolio. So it was really trying to catch up with, with everyone that we already work with. There were one or two people that that were people I was going to check out who I hadn't met before uh who we don't already work with but yeah certainly it was it was mostly um core key suppliers and and yes lots of tasting absolutely
0: <laughs> and I'm assuming um a lot of Sauvignon Blanc because uh, uh love it or hate it um it is uh, mm. a massively popular wine isn't it yeah that's
3: absolutely right it, there was of course a lot of Sauvignon Blanc. Um, But what was fantastic was basically just the the sheer um, diversity of other styles of wines out there as well. So um, yes, there was lots of Sauvignon uh, in in Marlborough in particular. uh, And it does seem like the plantings are only increasing. Uh, I was quite blown away actually in in Marlborough just by how many new vineyards are going in um, further and further down the valley to to areas that actually not so long ago people would have thought that you – probably couldn't ripen grapes in but still they're planting it's obviously still growing um but yes i mean gosh the the quality of of things like chardonnay and pinot is phenomenal as well so it is important that we don't forget about those because i think those are really world class
0: oh yeah i agree 100 percent although before we talk about those um it is worth (laughs) remarking on the fact that um it's it's kind of fashionable sometimes to say that this uh, you know a bubble will burst and that uh, mm. sort of marlborough sauvignon has sort of had its day but there is no evidence of it
3: is there it, it's still huge isn't it interesting subject it's certainly huge on a global scale um there's certainly more plantings um it does feel like the the momentum here isn't what it was to be honest in the uk oh, that's interesting um yeah, as of the last sort of year or so, I would say. Um, I think that was perhaps partially to do with the very, very small 2021 vintage. There wasn't a huge amount of wine. Um, and I think that a lot of merchants in the UK did a very good job of then saying to customers, OK, well, uh, have you thought about trying South African Sauvignon? Or have you thought about trying Chilean Sauvignon? And so on. And I think as a result of that, it's perhaps opened up people's eyes to other delicious expressions of Sauvignon Blanc from elsewhere. Um, so the days where we could just sort of, you know, put a new Sauvignon out there and uh, and it would immediately gain huge traction without a huge amount of promotion, they feel like, the, it feels like those days are sort of behind us, actually. Um, people are, I think, wanting to buy into a brand a little bit more than they did previously. I think the brand Marble Sauvignon isn't necessarily quite enough anymore. And especially since prices rose so much thanks to the 21 vintage being so small, you know, people who are strictly wanting to spend below, say, uh, £8.50 a bottle are forced to go elsewhere. And those who are uh, happy to spend more than that want to feel like they're getting a little bit more for their money than just the liquid. Um, So, look, I'm not going to say at the moment that the bubble has, has burst by any means, but I would say that the consumer is more savvy now than they probably ever have been. Savvy being a, a good word for so, yes, savvy. Yeah, <laughs> um,
0: that is really interesting. I, I mean, because of that 21 vintage, um, prices um did leap up just because there was no kind of bulk market to speak of. Yeah. And, um, and you've got uh, obviously, uh, you the, the the growers could command greater prices for their grapes. Um, and uh, are we seeing um the prices come back down again or have they set a a,
3: a kind of new benchmark now? I I would say first of all it's probably still early days um, but I think it's probably unlikely that they'll come back down again. I, I think also what we are seeing is a division within the region of Marlborough um, where there's ever more clearly two very different industries. Um, so you've still got your inexpensive bulk wine industry of Sauvignon Blanc and then Almost separate to that now, and more separate than it ever has been. You've then got your sort of quality producers in the region, and there still are a whole bunch of amazing, very good quality uh, winemakers in that region. It's not a region which is just doing cheap um, bulk Sauvignon. Uh, there's there's lots of wines there that really speak of the the the, the place. You know, they um, really reflect the the I mean, God, beautiful vineyard sites, but they really reflect the vineyard sites very well and And producers that have a really you know interesting story uh, behind them as well, um but it does feel a lot like there's more of a sort of separation than ever. I think with the the sort of uh quality producers uh, I don't know that their prices will come back down. I think that they are probably under more and more pressure due to the huge amount of plantings um, by a small handful of very, very big companies who are working in the bulk sort of sector. It's very hard to get more land. It's very hard to get more, you know, more plantings. So I think that prices probably won't come down. Uh, If they do, it won't be significant, but um, we might well see a return to some cheaper wines uh, at the sort of the supermarket entry level, but perhaps driven more by lost leaders in supermarkets. We shall Mm, see. It's, uh, It's all very interesting to watch. It is really interesting. Um, if uh, just finally on Sauvignon, if
0: you yeah. uh, were going to guide someone listening now towards um, a, a kind of top Marlborough Sauvignon that kind mm. of um, epitomizes what you're talking about there, the, 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 the kind of uh, finer end of, of, of yeah. Marlborough Sauvignon, because you're absolutely right. I was at uh, the new release tasting uh, a few months ago. There were so many beautifully nuanced, uh, different versions of. Uh, a, a Sauvignon Blanc all from Marlborough um who would you kind of um, guide uh, a consumer t- towards give us a, a, a couple of examples of, of really lovely wines at that end
3: oh absolutely yeah I mean the first thing that the first producer really that comes to mind for me would be someone like Dog Point you know set up by uh, guys who were very instrumental in in creating Marlborough as the region that we know it today Who um, worked previously at Cloudy Bay which was of course one of the pioneering wineries um, but Dog Point I think you know they've got a fantastic focus on on quality, um, but also regionality in the most original sense. I think there's a lot of what we talk, what what we m- might say is regionality in Marlborough nowadays but which actually comes down to just the type of cultivated yeast that's used which gives a very sort of stereotypical flavor um but i think dog point do a very good job of actually true marlborough regionality producers like uh ben glover i think he's making some fantastic wines across a few different labels he's sort of making what you could call a an affordable true taste of, of marlborough through his his brand zephyr which is very good so those would be a couple that come to mind and of course uh, you sort of can't really talk about top end Marlborough without talking about Kevin Judd and Grey Wacky really fantastic wines as well wonderful and, and, wines yeah. yeah really really lovely so and you know both both Dog Point and Grey Wacky have their sort of um, uh, f- fresh kind of stainless steel fermented examples but then also do some really interesting barrel fermented Sauvignons as well which are lovely if if perhaps uh, an, an acquired taste for anybody who has a particular idea of Marlborough Sauvignon in mind.
0: Yeah they are really um, innovative and, and, and different yet very true to uh, their their kind of home as well it, it, it sounds almost contradictory but they're um the, the, he is is one of uh, you know the, the top winemakers in new zealand really isn't he kevin judd
3: oh absolutely yeah yeah absolutely i think um you know marlborough does have some of the top winemakers in new zealand but um you know kevin judd is certainly a, a prime example of that and he's he's a man with Huge wealth of experience mm. um, and incredible attention to detail. I think uh, across his winemaking as well. Which actually, if if you follow him on Instagram, you'll see is applied to photography too. He's a phenomenal oh, yeah. photographer. yeah, amazing. So if you <laughs> yeah. haven't already taken a look, <laughs> then you definitely should.
0: They're beautiful. His uh, his work is fantastic. I I went to a tasting event um, uh, through his uh, his importer in the UK, and, and we were given some cards afterwards of his photography, and then mm. just. Absolutely fantastic, as you say. All available on uh, the likes of Instagram as well. So, um, I promised we'd talk about uh, the other things that are fantastic uh, from New Zealand, and um, we that has to include Chardonnay, as you say. Um, Vastly underrated, I always think.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I genuinely think that the quality of of Chardonnay and Pinot um, in New Zealand is fantastic, but it just very much lives in the shadow of Sauvignon, really. Um, So, uh, you know, hopefully if at some point you know we do start to see a decline in momentum of of new zealand sauvignon blanc actually that might be quite good news for, for chardonnay and pinot um you know we all know that chardonnay is a great great variety for uh being true to where it's grown reflecting the site uh, and there's some stunning sites in new zealand that um, that produce it and also you can get a real sense of regionality uh, across new zealand um you know chardonnay's grown from north south pretty much uh and they're all unique expressions um so yeah i think it'd be great to see people explore that more um you can find great examples across all price points as well you know from from there's not really probably a a lot below 10 pounds now in truth but certainly from sort of 11 12 pounds up to you name it you can get some really fantastic examples and uh,
0: I'm going to ask you to name a couple in a minute, but it's worth pointing out as well, <laughs> isn't it, that that um, at every price point, I think Chardonnay yes. from New Zealand offers exceptional
3: value for money. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, uh, you've you've got um, a conversation that's ongoing, of course, around Burgundy becoming more and more expensive, and and that's absolutely right. And I think sometimes it's a conversation that that um, we we probably have uh in, in 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 a slightly too enthusiastic way sometimes where it's a very easy selling point um for for chardonnay from anywhere around the world to say oh but burgundy's so expensive now why don't you try this instead but i actually I, I really do think that there are a small handful of producers in new zealand who really can compete um and we are you know we're talking about chardonnay at different price points um there's a, there's a whole spectrum of, of uh, different price points available. But when you're looking at sort of fine wine Chardonnay in New Zealand, there are examples which can, you know, go up against um, very serious white burgundy. Not not cheap. I'm not saying that, you know, you can find a £15 pound New Zealand Chardonnay that will go up against a top-end white burgundy. But the the sort of fine wine value is amazing. So it's sort of 30 £40 pounds. you can find something which will you know go head to head with a white burgundy of almost double its price so the, mm. the value there i think is is pretty phenomenal um so maybe it's you know it's a good opportunity to sort of get in there now before uh things carry on in the way that they're going i.e you know getting more expensive <laughs> um
2: yeah.
3: and uh, and sort of you know stock up with some top-end new zealand chardonnays for sure yeah and you're right you know value sometimes misunderstood people
0: associate value with cheap uh, and of course value is 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 bang for your buck basically at whatever price point you're you're talking so i, I sometimes think there's a, a slight disconnect when we talk about value and people think oh cheap wines but that's that's not really the the definition of of uh, of
3: value is it no you're absolutely right i think value is a sort of um at the point at which uh, price and quality cross really yeah. uh, and you know wherever that might be on the scale um it, value doesn't mean sub 10 pounds um value just means the amount of you know well in this instance the amount of wine that you get quality wise for for whatever price you're you're paying talking of which um give me some examples then of of
0: chardonnays to look out for
3: oh i mean you can't talk about new zealand chardonnay without talking about Kumiu, frankly um you know they're they're sort of tucked away up in the north just just above auckland about 20 minutes drive from the from the city center and uh michael brackovich is the, the the winemaker there and he is frankly just one of the great uh, Chardonnay winemakers in the in the world. I mean, mm. uh, you know, n- not only in the Southern Hemisphere, his wines are just uh, phenomenal and so age-worthy. Their single vineyard expressions are really, really exceptional. Um, and those are the wines that really I had in mind when I'm talking about uh, New Zealand Chardonnay going up against, you know, top-end white burgundy. Um, uh, so, so Kumu, uh, absolutely important that, he, you know, you look into those wines if you haven't already. Um, and then otherwise, down in the south, um, in central Otago, you've got uh, e- equally fine wine here, by the way. But you've got um, the likes of Felton Road, who are making pretty small quantities, really, or certainly small considering the amount of export markets they go into. But um, small quantities of of uh, incredibly fine and, again, very age-worthy chardonnay's quite crisp high acidity but they've got they've got real kind of um fruit weight there as well they're quite remarkable wines and then um something sort of more towards the the entry level we've been doing um a lot with a great producer called grove mill who are in marlborough Uh, unfortunately they had so little chardonnay in the 2021 vintage that we couldn't even get any so i don't think there's any in the uk but keep an eye out for the 2022 i think those are fantastic wines and they have quite a smart bit of sort of well-managed reduction, which is quite nice stylistically for a wine at sort of £12 mark. So yeah, those would be my my three, I'd say. Yeah, well, some fantastic names there. And as you say, uh, Michael
0: Brakovich at Cumu is just a, a genius, I think, absolute genius. Um, uh, I promised we'd talk about Pinot Noir as well. Um, and of course, Pinot Noir uh, kind of famously exhibits different uh, qualities in in different regions
3: of uh, of New Zealand. And that difference, mm.
0: certainly historically anyway, uh, is quite marked, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I'd say so. Um, you know, you've got a few key regions for, for Pinot in, in New Zealand. I mean, it is grown pretty much across the board uh, through New Zealand, but there are a few sort of standout places. So um, you've got folks like Atarangi in, in Martinborough, who are making some phenomenal Uh, Pinot Noir, uh, Central Otago. I mean, you can't talk about Pinot in New Zealand without talking about Central Otago, where you get these slightly sort of fuller, slightly more robust or or structural examples, um, which are quite remarkable, actually. Um, And then Marlborough, actually, I think is quite an upcoming region for Pinot Noir as well. You've got the likes of Dog Point, who we already mentioned for Sauvignon. They're making some fantastic Pinot there too. I, I would argue, though, that of those three regions, um marlborough is still the one which is yet to really carve out its sort of regional pinot identity Mm -hmm. um you can generally pick out you know Martinborough Central Otago from a blind tasting but marlborough is is a little trickier um but there are quite a few who are are nailing it i think and for me it's about that sort of uh, slightly more pretty expression slightly higher acidity slightly more lifted fruit but yeah it's a it's a really exciting one to watch um and i uh, you know maybe controversial but i do think that having been to australia and new zealand recently i think new zealand just about pips australia when it comes to pinot um i, I really think that they're making some world-class examples yeah interesting and i, I agree with your marlborough that style is
0: is still coming to the fore but i love that juicy energy that are really good uh, marlborough pinot exhibits
3: yes yeah absolutely it's really yeah juicy i think is a really nice word for it and you get maybe slightly more kind of floral character in there as well Mm. um which is quite nice to see so yeah when it's done right it can be a really really elegant expression
0: yeah very exciting uh place to be i i think for for pinot so final question then uh you were in new zealand a couple of weeks uh what was your overall perception of where new zealand is in wine terms now
3: so yeah it was a really interesting visit to come away from um I think um what was very clear to me was the consistency of quality it's very very high so uh you know those who are who are making good wines there are making very good wines consistently year on year um you know you've got a lot of very smart wine makers making the right decisions at the right time, so there's a lot of very very clean very well made wine um I would say that they could do with a little bit more innovation perhaps um just comparing that visit to the recent Australia one in Australia there's this incredibly exciting sort of undercurrent of um new producers coming through trying new things and you know not all of it's good by any means but it is important to have that innovation so that then you can uh if nothing else kind of force those people who've been doing it a certain way for a certain amount of time to just have a little think about what they could be doing differently, how they could push their quality forward. And I'm not seeing that so much in New Zealand. Um, There is a bit of a sense of it's not broke, so, you know, no need to fix it type of thing. But actually, I think they could do with just always pushing forwards and trying new things. But yeah, ultimately, it's a lot of very, very good wine. And I think that, um, you know, the future is very exciting. Maybe, you know, we'll see what happens with Sauvignon. Uh, but maybe it's uh, a bright future for, in particular, Pinot and Chardonnay. I think, and actually, one thing that really stuck out for me, which we haven't talked about, is was, um, was Riesling. I tasted some absolutely phenomenal Rieslings on the trip. So, so yeah, it's been a it's been a really interesting uh, interesting visit. Is Riesling a difficult sell still? I think it's changing. Maybe it still uh, is that grape, which is the one that um, the consumer. Uh, sort of doesn't quite get, but everyone in the trade loves. Um, mm. And I, th- I think I'm getting a sense that that is going to change. And it's very anecdotal at this stage, but um, just you know, speaking to quite a lot of people who are maybe more recently getting into wine, um, reasoning is the grape that they're really excited about, which is which is really interesting because that's quite a shift from. You know, people who've who've been well into wine for the last sort of 20 years or so, let's say, um, and beyond. So, yeah, certainly with the younger drinker, it seems like reasoning is the is the buzzword, is the exciting grape at the moment. So that could be really quite promising for for New Zealand because they're making some really superb expressions. Yeah, I really perceive that difference between
0: I have some Mm. friends who are a bit older than me and some friends who are quite a bit younger than me. And there is a real difference uh, in perception of Riesling uh, between those different sort of age groups. I think it's it's fascinating. But I I think you're absolutely right. Uh, It it has been wishful thinking on behalf of uh, the wine trade, I I think, for (laughs) for some time. But maybe it's shifting. Maybe at last Um, it's shifting
3: i think you're absolutely right and i think um you know we're far enough away from those examples of a couple of decades ago that really served to put people off uh so hopefully there's no sort of um uh what's the word there's 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 no sort of preconceived idea of what it might be you know Prejudice. people are just picking up yeah. exactly yeah. exactly people are just picking up uh, a bottle now giving it a go and finding that actually it's bloody delicious yeah. so uh, so i know i think that's really quite promising and quite exciting for new zealand where they're making some amazing examples yeah, well, bloody delicious is one of my favorite tasting notes of yours
0: <laughs> actually, I have to say. Oh good. Uh, I always find myself in agreement. So, um well, talking Riesling, um we, we will talk um Austria, but we're not going to do it now because we're going to be judging Austria together um in a few months time and I know you've also yes. recently traveled there, but we're going to cover that off because I know it's an area you are enormously passionate about. Uh, but sure, we'll, absolutely. we'll do that next time. Um but it's Okey been dokey. fascinating talking uh new zealand with you um, and lucky you getting to go there after a, uh, the, the pandemic kind of isolation and i can't wait to uh to see some of the wines that you've uh, you've signed up in the next uh, few months
3: but for now Freddie, yeah. thank you very much thank oh, you it's been a, a pleasure as always david i'll speak to you soon cheers
1: the drinking hour on food fm you're listening to the
0: drinking hour with david kermode in association with the international wine and spirit competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Right, we round off as ever with some IWSC medal winners from the process in 2022. Let's go to New Zealand first, which we featured last week. But as uh, Freddie has been uh, talking about the wines, thought I'd bring uh, at least a couple more uh, to uh, highlight uh, the quality coming out of New Zealand. Uh, he mentioned his love for Kiwi Chardonnay, as did I. Um, still almost criminally underrated, I think. Uh, Here's a wine that was definitely rated, however, with a gold medal at the competition. Church Road Grand Reserve Chardonnay 2020 from Hawke's Bay uh, in charge of the panel Dersieu Vienna Junior, Master of Wine, with judges including Freddie, um, Andrew Johnson and Megan Clark. Here's their tasting note, a rich, opulent style with notes of oatmeal, vanilla, baked apple, cream, sweet spices and lemon curd, well integrated and balanced with lovely fruit, fresh acidity, excellent structure, nice savoury notes and a very long finish. And we talked about Pinot Noir as well, of course. Craggy Range Single Vineyard, Timuna Road, Pinot Noir 2020 was a silver medal winner, an impressive 91 points. Uh, Craggy Range, a fantastic uh, producer, one of the most impressive wineries uh, I've ever been to, I think. Uh, Here's the panel's tasting note for this wine Uh, Deep, dark berry fruit, some earthy character on the velvety palate, silky tannins, lovely fruit concentration of supple fruit, sweet spice on the long finish. And Freddie also mentioned the kind of emerging style of Pinot Noir from Marlborough, uh, most famous, of course, for its Sauvignon Blanc. Um, Here's a name you may recognize because it has good availability in the UK. Uh, The King's Roth Pinot Noir 2020. Uh, This is from the Southern Valleys, Marlborough. One of silver. I was on the panel for this one too. Uh, Here's the tasting note. Soft cranberry and red cherry aromas with bright minerality and flavors of ripe wild berries on the palate. Well balanced and polished. Let's feature a ready to drink that category that's really booming at the moment. Uh, The category that the guys Rob and Sam from Moth occupy. I think it was probably uh, too early for them to be entering uh, the IWSC last year, but I'm sure those drinks will do very well if they enter them this year. Um, So let's look at some uh, successful medal winners uh, from that ready-to-drink category at the IWSC in 2022. Yebeki Watt apple pie cocktail from China won a whopping 98 points, a gold medal, and also the trophy in the category as well, best in show. This was tasted by Veronica Karlova, Shannon TBay um, a previous guest here on The Drinking Hour uh, back, uh, gosh, last summer, and Laura Richards. uh, They said this, an enticing cooked apple and plum core layered with notes of mulling spices and vanilla. Cherry aromas lighten the profile and the palate is silky smooth. A well-executed cocktail, they said. And here's another clever can, uh, curative Archie Rose Espresso Martini from Australia won a gold medal and 96 points. Uh, The tasting note, deep roasted freshly brewed coffee, chocolate, cherry, nuts, toffee, cocoa and vanilla notes expressing bold and punchy aroma characteristics on the nose. A sweet palate balanced by the coffee bitterness. Reach chocolate notes continue to linger on the finish. So well done to that one for another gold medal. No lingering on this finish. Uh, that's it for this week. My thanks to Rob and Sam at Moth. Do look out for those cocktails in cans uh, if you haven't tried them yet. And also to the wonderful Freddie Bulmer. Do join us next week for episode 99. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. And I am Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.
1: The Drinking Hour
0: on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.